0: Well, I feel like after our study last week of Genesis chapter 1, I need to let you know that um, apparently there's this subliminal message that the enemy has been sending through our church after we talked about God as creator. Uh, It was pointed out to me that uh, over the course of just this last week, all of the soap dispensers in the entire church were changed out. Okay, all the old ones were removed, and we now have new soap dispensers everywhere. The... um, (laughs) No kidding, the, the Evolution brand soap dispensers. So any bathroom you go into, and I thought, okay, out of all of the soap dispensers in all of the universe, we got Evolution brand. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Caused me to pause for a moment. What's going on here? Okay. Uh, I wanted to give you a heads up as well. Uh, this is what's going on in the next few weeks. We've got a lot of overlap in, in kind of the themes and stuff that move through Genesis 1 through 3. So next week, Blake will be here talking about creation care, our response to this environment, this world that we've been commissioned to care for. I'll be over at Southwood next week talking at w- about work and rest. And then the following week, 929, I will be back here talking on work and rest. And then ten six Matt Morton will be talking about marriage and sexuality. From Genesis. Okay, so that's what's coming up in the next few weeks. If you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and we will continue our study in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. I remember uh, vividly in eighth grade trying out for a baseball team and I really wanted to make this team. The, uh, the high school coach was actually running the, the tryouts because I think he wanted to get a, an eye on what kind of talent was coming up through the schools and in the town. And, and I really wanted to make this team. All my friends were trying out. I knew the guys who'd make it. I, I was really confident that I would do well. But I hadn't been throwing a ball uh, all winter. I've been, I've been playing other sports. I've been playing hockey. So I hadn't thrown a ball at all. First day of tryouts, I came out and I was throwing really hard. I was trying out for pitcher and third base. And so I was, I was throwing the ball really, really hard, although I hadn't been throwing at all. And that first practice day... I got to the end of it, and, and I could barely lift my arm. I mean, every muscle in my arm and my shoulder was just on fire. I was in so much pain. I went home, and I slept, and I thought, oh, man, I hope this thing heals up so I can go day two. Well, I woke up in the morning, and my arm was just like, like this thing of lead just hanging on my body. I could barely lift it up. I went to tryouts, and you know, I was just Oh, I was throwing the ball. I could barely, barely even throw it at all. And about the middle of practice, Coach knew that I wanted to pitch, and so he said, Brian, why don't you throw some batting practice? I was like, Oh no. And I don't know, you know, if it was pride or embarrassment or what. I didn't tell him that I had hurt my arm. And so I got up on the mound, and you know, it was it was a strain just to get the ball to the plate. I didn't throw a single strike. I threw 10 or 15 pitches and he, he said, Okay, that's enough. I was like, oh man. Third day of tryouts, I, I didn't do any better. My arm was still killing me. Got to the end of tryouts, and he said, well, you know, I've posted the names. These are the guys who have made the team, the rest of you, come over here. And I was, I was in that group. And you know, it was, I was just crushing. And it, it was crushing not just because of baseball, but I had I'd failed in front of my friends. You know, I tried out for another team and I made another team and I got to play that spring but I had, I had failed in front of my friends and I really drew a sense of value from what I could do in baseball and I drew a sense of value from the affirmation of my friends and my skills and abilities and it was crushed and it, it, it gave me a, this powerful sense of doubt in a sense about my actual value. Maybe you've felt that before. We all long to feel valued we want to know that we are important that we matter in this world but where do we get that sense of value from specifically i want to ask you if there is no god where do you find value if there is no god do you have value at all as we've gone through our study what we have observed is that genesis actually assumes god exists As we look at the data that we see, all the evidence in the universe we have to concur, you know, it's most logical and most reasonable to agree, God exists. How else can we explain this, this vast and complex universe apart from a powerful and an intelligent God? God must exist and he demonstrates personality through his creatures, specifically us, and morality and goodness. We see all these things about God through the evidence in his creation. But we've also challenged ourselves to think, what if God did not exist? What are the implications of that? Specifically this morning, if God does not exist, is there any value to us and to our lives? Former Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was a brilliant man, but he was no friend of the Christian faith. He once wrote, I see no reason for attributing to man... A significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. So if God does not exist, which he did not believe God existed, then there is ultimately no value to man. We are this conglomeration of complex matter. But ultimately, nothing more. We don't have value or significance beyond that of a baboon or a grain of of sand. But you know, it's really difficult for us to live like that. It's difficult for us to to contemplate that and and, and accept that. And so we try to find meaning in all different kinds of ways. The current philosophical foundation for value or meaning of people is that we are valued according to our capacities. I want you to, to, to ponder that with me for a moment. We have value according to our capacities, our capacity to reason, to relate, to produce. But you see the implication of that? When your capacity to reason or to relate or to produce diminishes, consequently, so does your value. And when maybe those capacities are completely gone, when your mind doesn't work like it used to work and your body can't function like it used to function, do you have value? What of those who are born and their minds... From birth, don't work well. Or their bodies don't work well. Or what about those who are not yet born, but we would call them human? Do they have value? No, because they do not have capacities. Well, that's really depressing. (laughs) That's really depressing. And, you know, most folks don't want to live with that concept either, that, in fact, their life has meaning only attached to capacities, right? Uh, I would say probably 50% of you right now who are sitting in this audience, you're in the prime of life man, enjoy it. It's awesome. It's a great time, but it will not last. You know, you peak physically, I guess, you know, between 18 and 22. That means you graduate and you go downhill. That, this, is, this is where you are, right? You're, you're turning the corner downward. And what then? You know, as most folks contemplate that, they say, no, I really don't want to attach my value to my capacities. And so what they do is they turn up the volume on life. Say, if life ultimately has no meaning, then I will get all of the gratification right now in this moment that I can through pleasure or through power. And I just crank it up and try not to think about the fact that my life does not have significance. Well, fortunately, the word of God from the very first chapter says, no, you have value because... You have been made in the image of God. You have intrinsic worth because you have been made in the very image of the one true creator of the universe. Genesis uh, begins with the very big picture. God is creating the universe and then it draws to a very sharp focus on the pinnacle, so to speak, of creation, which is mankind. Men and women made in the image of God. It's the longest single section in Genesis chapter 1 is a description of our creation. And then chapter 2 is focused exclusively on the creation of man. Because we are the pinnacle of the creation of God, made in the image of God. I want you to read with me the account in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over everything that moves upon the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The key phrase in Genesis chapter 1 is a short phrase. It's it's the image of God. And I will tell you, volumes have been written by theologians. Not just because theologians and pastors go on and on and on about stuff. But volumes have been written because this is one of the most important phrases in the entire Bible. But interestingly, it's not explained here in chapter 1. We're going to go to chapter 2 to begin to unpack the meaning or the significance of the phrase, image of God. I want you to go with me to Genesis 2, verse 4. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to arise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, what we have is a, a summary of what's going to follow. There's an interesting structure in the book of Genesis And it's marked by a Hebrew word ca- uh, called Toledot Sometimes you'll see in your translation uh, These are the generations of There are ten of these markers in the book of Genesis Toledot These are the generations of Or, or essentially what it's saying is this, what ha- this is what happens next in the story okay? In chapter 2 verse 4 We have the first Toledot It's saying This is the storyline of the Bible And where does it begin? begins with us. The significance of the storyline begins with us. Chapter 2, verse 4. A summary. Here is what is about to happen. Chapter 2, verse 5. No shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. We have two deficiencies. There is no water, and there is no cultivator. And so God sets about to solve both of those. In chapter 2, verse 6, God solves the water problem. It says a mist, or probably better, a spring rose up and watered the ground. In chapter 2, verse 7, he brings in the cultivator. The ground is now watered, and there will be someone to care for it. Chapter 2, verse 7. It says, then the Lord God formed, from the dust of the ground, formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. You'll notice first, it says God formed man from dust. The the word for form is usually used of a craftsman or frequently of a potter. Carefully, intentionally, not accidentally, God took the stuff of earth and he formed the man. And you'll notice this word for earth here contains actually the name Adam. Adam is from the earth. He is called one from the earth. So God takes this dust, this dirt, this matter that he has created, he forms a man, but now he has a a, a lifeless mass, and so he comes to this one, and comes face to face, and breathes into him the breath of life, and this one becomes animated, comes to life, and we're told he becomes a nephesh or a living creature. Now what's interesting is that none of these three elements are what set man apart, The animals are also formed from the dust of the earth. They have the breath of life in them, and when the breath of life leaves them, they die. They're also called nephesh or living creatures. What sets man apart is that he is in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, this word is actually used four times in the book of Genesis, but it's never directly explained. So let me offer four observations about it. First, it applies to all of humanity. Male and female in the image of God. Women are not more in the image than men and men are not more in the image than the woman. The rich are not more in the image of God than the poor. The poor are not more in the image of God than the rich. The healthy are not more in the image of God than the sickly and the sickly are not more in the image of God than the healthy. All men and women are in the image of God. Second, it applies both before and after the fall and the flood. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we are reminded after fall, after flood, that every man, every woman is made in the image of God. And then third, it is limited by the concept of likeness. Notice again chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image, the third barah. Let us create something unique and special, not seen before. Let us create man in our image according to our likeness. We're in the image of God, but we're also in the likeness of God. According to ancient Near Eastern theology, the king was in the image of God. And what that meant was the king was God, and the king was consequently to be worshipped. Free men were a shadow of the God, and slaves were a shadow of men. They were not actually real men. But the king himself was the very image of God and consequently should be worshipped. Moses sets our theology apart from the beginning and says, No, we are in the image of God, which makes us unique and special among creatures, but we are not God. We are simply and just the likeness of God. So what does that mean? Well, I'm going to give you three qualities of the image of God. First, the image of God means that we are designed to relate to God. We are designed and created with a unique capacity to have a personal relationship with God. Read with me again verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. What's going on here? Well, some believe that what you have is God sitting around with all of the angels and he's talking to them. I have an idea for all of you. Let us... Make man in our image. The only problem with that is angels are not in the image of God. Only men and women. What you have here is an early hint at a Trinitarian God. It's not fully expounded. It won't be for another 1,500, 1,600 years. But you have here an early hint of a Trinitarian God. We actually saw it in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, didn't we? God the Father in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, but his spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. And then God spoke, and we're told in John 1, the word of God is the Son of God. And so God the Father is directing all activity. The Son is his agent of creation by the power of the Spirit they made together. We have a triune God. And we we're reminded last week that God didn't create because He was lonely or bored. God wasn't for all of eternity deficient in any manner. He wasn't sitting around and saying, "Spirit, you're boring, and so are you, Son. I, I need to. I need more. I need more people, persons. I, I'm I'm lacking in something. Let me make." No, God was fully and completely satisfied within himself and the relationships that existed between Father and Son and Spirit. As we saw last week, they were sharing glory, meaning they were loving one another. And they created men and women so that we could enter into the love of God as a triune, relational God. Jesus tells us that is the essence of life. John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. And John is not talking about life in the future that you get someday. John is talking about eternal life as a present and future possession. He's talking about something not in terms of its duration, but in terms of its quality. He's saying this is the life of the ages. This is the life that is possessed with God. What is it? that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is Christ's high priestly prayer, and he will go on later and he will say, God, I pray that they would enter into it and they would know unity with us, the unity that we shared from all of eternity. To be made in the image of God means you can have a personal relationship with God. It means not only can you relate to God, but also you are designed to relate to one another. Okay? Relationships with one another read with me again chapter 1 and verse 27 God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him and so that you don't miss the point male and female he created them male in the image of God female in the image of God and I would argue the image of God actually not yet completely represented on earth until there is male and female Have you ever wondered, why did God continue to create? Once he had Adam, and he had Adam in his image, why didn't God say, you know, this is enough? Adam's life will be a lot less complex if I just stick him in the garden by himself. You know, there's not going to be disagreement. And, you know, let's just make it easy on Adam. We're done. We got one in the image. Why did he continue on? Why did he, in fact, say, this is good, and this is good, and this is good, but this is not good at all. This is really, really bad. Adam is alone. Because... God is a relational God, and Adam needed one like himself to whom he could relate, but not exactly like himself. Why did cre- God create Adam and then not create another male for companionship? Why did it have to be female? So, you and I have a lot of relationships, a lot of relationships in which we can uh, relate to one another. And enjoy relationships with one another. But the pinnacle of relationships on a human standpoint is the marriage relationship. Because it's in that marriage relationship where a union can be created that is unlike any other union you can have in any other relationship. And so we have other relationships that are really satisfying and fulfilling for us. But that is the one relationship that is designed by God to actually reflect God's Trinitarian nature. Within the Trinity, we have Father, Son, Spirit. Three distinct persons. But they are all equal. All are God. The Spirit is not less God, nor is the Son less God than the Father. Three distinct persons, all equal, and all God. One God, three persons. Okay? Unique but complementary, was they are creating. They're not all fulfilling the same function and the same role. Instead, we actually see a hierarchy of authority in which there is no resentment, no conflict. We see the father directing the, 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 the son, actualizing or executing the plans of God, the spirit empowering the son to execute God's plans so that the father may be glorified, all glory may be handed to the father, and yet there's no conflict. There is just love. That is ultimately what marriage is designed to be. Husband and wife. Equal partners. Equally made in the image of God. Yet different, distinct, complementary. Complementing one another in strengths. Complementing one another in personality and characteristics. And yet a hierarchy of authority in which there should be no uh, oppression or fear. But just love and consequently a reflection of the very nature and the attributes of God. The other set of relationships God has given us to reflect the Trinity is right here, the church, the body of Christ. Many members, but one body, mutually submitting to one another and yet submitting also to the hierarchy, the authority, who rules in benevolence and kindness and goodness and wisdom. No conflict, just love and love and mutual respect. That is what God designed us for. So first, being made in the image of God means that we're designed to relate to God and to one another. Second, we're designed to reflect God's glory. We're designed to reflect God's glory. Uh, Psalm chapter eight is actually a a poetic meditation by David on Genesis chapter two. I wanna read part of it with you. It says in Psalm eight, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. Glory means literally heaviness. Figuratively, it means importance. It became shorthand for talking about God. God is glorious. His his personal Trinitarian nature is. His goodness, his kindness, all of his attributes. Shorthand for talking about that is the glory of God. And men and women, we have been crowned with that. Okay? We have been granted the image of God so that we carry God's personality, God's qualities like, like, like a crown, the glory of God. And we get to reflect that in two ways. Okay? In character and in physical form. Okay? In character... And in physical form. The way that we relate to God and one another. In our personalities. And also in our physical form. I want you to read with me again. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and he put him into the garden in Eden. To cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Again, have you ever wondered, God, why did you create that tree in the first place? You know? Or if you had to create it, why don't you just stick it in some valley far, far away that was hidden from everyone, surround it with a big wall and guards, those big angels with swords and all that, so Adam couldn't actually get to it. God, why did you take the risk? Because God is a moral God by nature. The tree was actually a grace from God because we become fully human when we make moral choices because God is a moral God. God is a God of character. And so men and women had to have an opportunity to make a choice for God. They didn't. We'll talk about that story later. We'll talk about the trees in a couple weeks. But the point is, even that remnant of character through conscience remains in us and God calls upon us to make choices that reflect his nature. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God doesn't say, I have this long list of rules and regulations. They're really pretty arbitrary, but I just like making up rules. So would you please do all of them to the best of your abilities? You'll fail and I'll judge you for it. But that's what I'm into, right? Is is that the point? No, that's not the point. God says, no, you're my children and children should be like their parents. And so I want you to be holy that is whole. Because I am whole. Reflect me. Reflect me. Reflect me in character. But also in physical form. Okay, also in physical form. Now, uh, you may be saying to yourself, wait a second, Brian, God doesn't have a body, right? Well, it's interesting, if you look at the term, the image of God, there are four uses in Genesis. There are 13 more uses outside of Genesis in the Old Testament. Almost all of those refer to something physical. Okay? An idol a painting, Seth in the image of Adam. They're always something physical, and you say, Whoa, whoa wait a second, but but God isn't physical. God doesn't have a, a body. Does He? No, God does not have a body, but God has form. Okay? I want you to turn back to the book of Philippians with me, Philippians chapter two. Philippians two verse five. Paul writes, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. From all of eternity, the Son of God existed. And how did he exist? He existed in the form of God. God has form, a form that's appropriate to his domain. And so the son had form, he had divine form, and then he took on another form, the form of a bondservant, because he was placed in a new domain, he was placed upon the earth. And so he was given a form that was appropriate to his domain so that he could accomplish God's purposes within this new domain. And you have been given a form that allows you to accomplish God's will for your life in a physical world. This is a physical world, and so you've been given a form that's appropriate to do the will of God. And even through that form, you can reflect God. You can reflect God. Let me give you one illustration of this. Psalm chapter 94, verse 9 says, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Saying, God hears and God sees. Does that mean that God has ears and eyes? No, he doesn't have ears and eyes. But God hears and sees. And so, he has placed ears and eyes on you, so that when you look in the mirror, you are reminded that you have a responsibility to hear and to see. In the context, it is about God hearing and seeing that the poor are being oppressed, that widows and and orphans are being overlooked. And God is a God of compassion and justice, and so God hears and sees all of this, God is a moral God. And so when you look at yourself and you see your eyes, see your ears, even if they don't function well, you're reminded that you can fulfill these functions of hearing and seeing, of being like God on earth, having compassion and justice on earth. And what's amazing is that not only do you actually have an opportunity to reflect God's glory in character, but even in your physical body. And I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And let's read verse 30. 29, start in verse 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, And the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down from the mountain. That Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. (laughs) What happened? Moses was glowing, not figuratively literally irradiated with the glory of God. And so when he came down from the mountain, his face is glowing, and Moses doesn't realize that he is literally reflecting within his physical body the very glory of God, and it is scary. The people say, whoa, 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 back off. Moses finally realizes what's going on, and so whenever he talks to the people from then on, he puts the veil down. But man, when he gets back in God's presence, what does he do? Lift it up. Irradiate me. Let me absorb more of your glory, God, because that's what I was designed to do. This is after the fall, this is before resurrection. Moses is glowing. It's an amazing verse here in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I don't think that is merely poetic language. I think there is a literal reality behind that. That we see illustrated in Moses when he is in the very presence of God, he comes away and he glows. And there is no longer any need for a sun in the the kingdom because we have the glory of God which illuminates everything. Get rid of the sun. It's not bright enough. Okay? It's not warm enough. Instead we get the presence of God, and being in the presence of God face to face with the veil lifted, we glow. We are radiant. To be made in the image of God means that you were designed for this. A beauty that's hard to even contemplate. Now third, because you're made in the image of God, you were designed to rule over God's creation. God says to Adam and Eve, fill the earth and then subdue it. Rule and reign. This is royal language. Rule and reign on my behalf. And we'll talk a lot more about that in the next couple of weeks when we talk about work and our labor and the significance of it. But I want us to look again at Psalm chapter 8, David's poetic reflection. He says, You crown man with glory and majesty. You make him for this purpose, to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So to be made in the image of God means these three things. We relate to God, we relate to one another. We reflect God's glory in our character, but also in our physical form. And we were designed to rule over God's creation. And we don't do that very well, do we? At the fall, which we'll talk about significantly, when we cover Genesis chapter 3, the, the image of God was uh, tarnished, it was damaged. It wasn't destroyed, it wasn't eliminated. But it, it was definitely damaged at the fall. So now, we really don't want to relate to God often. We really want to live independently from God. We don't do well often in our relationships with one another because we actually want to rule over one another rather than love one another. And we want to rule over our own domain rather than taking God's glory and spreading that. We want to build up our own little kingdoms and find significance there. And so we don't do that well. But God is constantly in our lives working to renew and refresh and renovate the image of God. What does that look like? Well, it starts with you understanding that you have value because you were made in the image of God. You are valuable. You know, you will never ever hear that message from our culture. What you'll hear is you're valuable insofar as you have capacities to produce, to think, to relate. When those capacities are gone, so is your value. And when you walk into the grocery store and you look at the checkout line, what do you see? You see famous faces and beautiful bodies. You see a concept of image that is two-dimensional. That is image. What matters? Just the image. And we know in our minds, okay, every one of those pictures has been airbrushed a thousand times, and yet we're still tempted to bow down and worship that image and say, no, that's image. That's value. Although it's two-dimensional and it is ultimately a lie, we're tempted to say, no, those people are valuable because they're famous. They're, They're valuable because they are known. And so because they're known by so many people, they must be able to speak into our lives and we don't stop as we're tempted to worship and back up and say, no, those bodies will decay. Those minds will diminish. And then where is the value? Where do you find value? Find value in the fact that you are made in the image of God. There is a, a, a stunningly profound verse, probably my favorite verse on sanctification or the renewal of the image of God is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It reads like this. But we all... With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. He's drawing upon this imagery of Moses being the presence of God. And he says, we pull back the veil. And what pulling back the veil means is coming for the first time to Jesus Christ. And saying, God, I accept that I have value Because Christ died for me. Do you know that God has declared that you are of immeasurable value because he was willing even to send his son to die for you? God says, this is what you're worth. You're worth the death and suffering of my son. You are worth that much. And you know, ultimately, only God's evaluation matters. And he says, that's what you're worth. And you pull back the veil when you come to God for the first time and you say, God, I believe that I have value in Christ. Thank you for giving him to remove my debt. And when you do that, then you have the opportunity as a son or a daughter of God to continuously come into his presence with face unveiled and behold as in a mirror the glory of God. And what you're seeing there is a reflection. You're seeing God's glory within you because you're made in his image. But it's, it's tainted, it's marred, it needs renovation. But as you behold and you behold and you behold and you draw all of your value and your significance from God's declaration about you, It transforms your character. It gives you confidence in your love and your relationship with God. And you know what? It transforms all of your relationships. Because now you look at every other person and you say, Made in the image of God. Valuable. No matter how broken or poor or wretched. Made in the image of God. No matter how famous or well-known or beautiful all that matters made in the image of God and you enter into these relationships no longer out of fear or out of control or wanting to use people but because they are valuable in the image of God. And you enter like Jesus Christ who is the very image of God in human flesh and you enter to give because you can give because you are completely and utterly filled up with Jesus Christ. My favorite uh, piece of writing by C.S. Lewis, is called The Weight of Glory. If you have never read it, I, I read it several times a year, my favorite piece that he ever wrote. He made this statement in this article. He said, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Made in the image of God. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we would see we have value just because we are made in your image. No matter how great or small our intellectual capacities or our relational capacities or our ability to produce We have value because you have declared we have value and ultimately you are the only one who matters. I pray, Father, that we would begin to absorb that and I pray, Father, that that would radically impact the way that we relate to one another, that we would regard one another no longer according to the flesh but according to the image of God within. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you. Enjoy being an image bearer of the one true creator God. Have a great week.
1: Thanks for joining us. I'm Matt Morton. I'm here with Brian Fisher and Blake Jennings, and we are going to talk about the sermon from September 15th on the image of God from Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, great messages yesterday, and uh, one of the things that came up consistently in both of your talks was uh, this idea of the image of God, what it means to be made in God's image, is not tied to our capacity, what we can do, how well we can think, how fast we can run. And I was intrigued, Brian, in particular, in your message, you mentioned that our capacities kind of peak between 18 and 22 uh, I was sorry to hear that. I didn't necessarily think I was well past my prime, but one of the things Blake and I were thinking about earlier is just maybe you could give us some perspective. What should we expect as we approach old age and elderliness since mm-hmm. you're kind of a few years from? Well, Matt, actually, <laughs> you know, looking at the two of
0: you today, I would say you already know what to expect.
1: <laughs> well, all right. We will uh, move on from there. Um you know, along those same lines, when we talk about the image of God, again, we see it's not related to our capacity directly. So those who are smarter or not as smart, those who are stronger, not as strong, aren't necessarily more or less in the image of God. But as you look at the book of Genesis and the Bible as a whole, then what does that say about how we're called to treat one another as human beings? Brian, how would you address that? Matt, let me start by connecting it to the narrative of Genesis. In
0: chapter 4, Cain defensively asks God a question, am I my brother's keeper? And it seems that Cain assumes the answer is no, I have no responsibility for my brother. But God views it very differently. In fact, he communicates to Cain, you you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for your brother as well because you are in in the image of God and your brother is in the image of God. So because you're in the image of God, you're designed to reflect the character of God, and God is compassionate and kind and sacrificial and giving. Because your brother is in the image of God, you need to show him respect and honor as someone made in the image of God. So in a sense, the image of God in ourselves and in others needs to govern the way that we relate to one another. Interesting verse in James chapter 3, where... James says, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and then we turn around and we curse men who've been made in the image of God. James says that is completely out of whack. That is out of line. We need to treat others consistently, in a sense, with
1: how we view God because they are in the image of God. Good. Yeah. And that brother's keeper concept is uh, incredible. I'm sure parents everywhere are trying to backtrack and get that passage written down to talk to their kiddos about. So, yeah, well, so, Quite honestly, Matt,
0: sometimes that's one of the things I address with my own kids when they're not treating one another well, is I, I say, what's the basis? On what basis should you treat your sister kindly or treat your brother kindly? It's simply because they're made in the image of God. But, uh, I, by the way, it, it doesn't really work very well as a parent. But,
2: <laughs> but it's I a good concept. Less because I got to
0: bring a little theology into the house, right?
1: That's <laughs> right. Well, so if the basis of how we treat one another then is rooted in this image of God, Blake, give us some examples uh, practically on a social, cultural level. How does this play out? If I'm thinking, all right, you're made in the image of God, that affects how I treat you What does that look like when we talk about some of the big issues facing
2: our culture? Right. I think that as we look at the theology of the image of God, it shapes how we treat individuals. And let me me clarify this by contrasting it to the other dominant worldview, which you've mentioned. Uh, What if we view people based on their capacities? So in most of the big debates of our day about who deserves the right to life and who does not, It comes down to an issue of capacities. How do you define capacities? So a fetus who is 18 weeks old doesn't yet have the capacity to feel pain, so that fetus is not protected in some states. A fetus that is 26 weeks old does have the capacity to feel pain, so it is protected. So right to life comes down to capacities if you don't have a theology of the image of God. That's very problematic for a society. So let me give you an example Peter Singer is a brilliant Princeton philosopher who's not a Christian. He takes this train of thought to its logical conclusion. If you define life based on capacities, for him the key capacity is whether you have the ability to form a preference that you want to stay alive. So if a person does not have a preference that he or she wants to stay alive, then he or she does not have a right to life. Well, fetus clearly doesn't yet have a a shaped preference about whether it would like to stay alive or not. It doesn't have that capacity to reason that out. But Singer is a smart guy. He recognizes Not only does a fetus not have that, neither does a newborn baby have that. An infant doesn't have any capacity to choose life, to choose to want to stay alive. That's why Singer, to quote him in his own words, says killing a newborn baby is never equivalent to killing a person. That is a being who wants to go on living. He's just taking this capacities idea to its logical conclusion. Infant doesn't have a preference for life, so it's okay to to bring an infant to, uh, to kill an infant. It's not the same as killing a person. That same train of thought could be applied to those who are old or to those who suffer from severe dementia or Alzheimer's. That's why in a lot of these arguments, euthanasia becomes permissible very quickly when a society loses the image of God and defines life based on capacities, it begins very quickly to shrink the circle of protection. So more and more people begin to fall outside of that circle. So you, You look at the Roman Empire, for example, 2,000 years ago, the circle became very small. Infants didn't have a right to life. The very elderly didn't have a right to life. Those who were of a different race did not have a right to life. They weren't even viewed as necessarily human. That's why you had gladiatorial contests where people would actually die, and it was entertainment, because those aren't valuable people. Slaves, you could kill slaves because they didn't have the same value as us. So, when you begin to define uh, the, the value of human life based on capacities then that circle shrinks down further and further and further in, in the public
0: square the discussion centers around human rights right so let's use the vocabulary of the public square human rights how do we define what is human if we go all the way back into the the culture of moses day in the ancient near east the king was the only one who was in the image of god and so the king had uh, boundless rights, so to speak. He, he was the ultimate form of human, a man in the image of God. Uh, free people were uh, a shadow of the God, so they had some rights, so to speak, but slaves were a shadow of a man. So slaves had absolutely no rights. They were not human. We, we see s- similar philosophies and thinking working, as Blake said, all the way through the Roman days into our current days, we're discussing human rights. N- no one necessarily would argue uh, the fetus is not life or alive in some sense, but what they would say is it's not human yet. Consequently, it doesn't have human rights because humanity is defined by capacities. Though so there are enormous social implications, sure, for uh, abortion for uh, euthanasia. Um, I think there are social implications of the image of God as well on the issue of racism. Ultimately, the only solution for racism in our country or throughout the world is a return to seeing people in
1: the image of God. Okay. So my question for you guys, then somebody may be listening and say, you know, you don't really need the image of God though, to treat people well. In other words, I just I treat people the way I want to be treated. If I treat you poorly today, you might come back, or your group might come back and treat me poorly tomorrow. Isn't that a sufficient basis for treating others well? Apart from having to have this construct of God's image, someone says that. What do you? How do you answer that question, Matt? What we're looking at is on a cultural basis. We have to create
0: protections. So. You and your friends work out an agreement in a sense that you're going to treat one another the way that you want to be treated. But then how do outsiders treat you who have utterly and absolutely no respect for you? They don't care how you treat them back. They don't share that value. On a broader cultural level, if we are not seeing people in the image of God, then we're going to see uh, great inconsistencies in the
2: way that we treat one another. Yeah, what you're talking about It sounds like utilitarian ethics. So my ethics, my morality is based on simple utility, what you can offer me. I want to make sure that I don't do something to you that you would do back to me. Those work in a lot of cases, but they don't work when you hold all the cards. When you are the one in absolute power, then uh, there is no reason for you to treat other people well. The beauty of the image of God is that shapes theology and behavior for everyone in the world. From the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich, it equalizes everyone and puts them on the same basis. Because it's not about utility. It's not about what you could do to me or what I could do for you. It's about the fact that all of us are made in the image of God. So, so ultimately, this
0: philosophical and legal construct, what it does is it protects the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. The, the powerful don't need protection, the vulnerable do. That's why you see so much discussion in the Bible about God's attitude toward the vulnerable. Let me give you an illustration. As regards uh, poverty, in the book of Proverbs, it says, he who oppresses the poor taunts his, his maker. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. This is what I think really forms the background for James' discussion of how we treat the poor. Treat the poor as made in the image of God. The rich have have power, the vulnerable must be protected, and we reveal how deeply we understand the image of God in ourselves and others
1: based upon we, how we treat those who are vulnerable or marginalized in a society. Wonderful. Yeah, so this image of God shapes how we treat everybody on an individual level, but ultimately it's going to have an impact— on how we view broad societal issues, uh, poverty, politics, all of those sort of issues. So as we are closing up our time, maybe each of you in a nutshell, if you say, um, how can I move through my day with an awareness of the image of God practically and treat others as made in the image of God? What's just one short piece of advice you'd give somebody?
2: I would say one of the things that's been convicting to me from this passage is am I walking through life, am I walking through my day recognizing every person I see as a bearer of the image of God, as my brother or sister, or am I seeing them as the world does? So, uh, frankly, if I don't check myself, if I'm not thinking about this, then I'm, I'm more likely to notice the athlete, the doctor, the lawyer, the person who society lifts up. I'm less likely to see the poor person, the homeless person, or the person who uh, is is doing menial labor, whatever it might be. And and that's wrong. It it may not be called racism, but it's just as wrong. And so for me, one of the things I'm challenging myself to do is as I walk through my day, every person I see recognize that is a bearer of the image of God. There's nothing mundane about that person. They are infinitely valuable to God.
0: Yeah, Matt, I put it in really simple terms for myself. I I like to look people in the eye. So particularly the people who I, I might be in a, a position where I have more, more power in the relationship, so to speak, uh, I want to look them in the eye, speak to them directly, and treat them with honor and dignity. Those who have nothing to give to me, I want to treat them with honor and dignity. You think about how We often respond when we see that homeless person or the person who's sitting there and begging. No matter what circumstances put that person there, even if it was their own personal choice that put them there, we avert our eyes. We choose to pass by and not look. Rather than perhaps we have no money in our pockets at that moment and we can't actually help them, we can still look that person in the eye and say, I'm sorry, but I can't help you today. But we acknowledge them. Uh, as, as men and women made in the image of God. Uh, if I can, I'd, I'd love to uh, wrap us the, today with uh, this passage in Psalm 8. As, it's, just this, it's a beautiful reflection on um, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. David wrote, When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. That's Genesis 1. What is man that you take thought of him? and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet.
1: O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you. And uh, just a reminder to those listening for all of these resources, for the sermons, notes, questions following up from the sermon, You can find that at grace-bible.org or download our app, Grace Bible Texas, from your app store. Have a wonderful week.